G'day, here at the Regenerative Journey, part of our goal is to educate our followers on the benefits of knowing where their food comes from and the knock-on effects this can have on our health, our environment and our future generations. Understanding the connection has never been more important and in the spirit of this endeavour, we have teamed up with Highland Beef Pastoral Company, a grass-fed beef supply chain servicing the growing US grass-fed consumer market, who I'm excited to announce are our Season 6 show sponsors. Essentially, this Australian-based business places cattle on their member graziers' properties at no expense to the farmer and provides competitive returns for every kilo of beef produced, allowing their graziers to focus on improving their businesses in a capital-free and risk-free environment. Highland Beef Graziers are some of the best grass and animal managers in the country. Livestock are humanely and lovingly cared for while on their farms and customers are guaranteed a very high-quality, regeneratively managed grass-fed and finished product with full transparency from farm to plate. If you're interested in finding out more about this program, visit hbpastoral.com.au forward slash Charlie Arnott. I do feel very, very passionate about men and men's health. And we do somewhat take our health for granted, but life is fleeting and we don't have a lot of time here. And when something like that happens, it makes you really appreciate the fact that how short our time here is. And I was given a second chance. That was David Carter, and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. From wherever we are, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, recognising their continuing connection to this land, its waterways, the stars in the skies since time immemorial. We pay our respects to the elders, knowledge holders, and to all the generations of First Nations peoples who have nurtured their unceded sovereign lands for over 80,000 years and continue to do so today. G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott, an eighth-generational Australian regenerative farmer, and in this podcast series, I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host, Charlie Arnott. G'day, welcome back to The Regenerative Journey, and uh, as I again sit here at the farm at Byron Bay in a reasonably echoey room, I reflect on COP27 that was just not too long ago. The, you guys are probably hearing this some weeks after I've recorded it, but um, so I'm not sure where that's all headed um, since this thing, probably not very far to be honest, I don't actually know what, what good comes of a lot of those talk fests, global talk fests, I uh, know a few people who went. Um, you know, good, bad, the ugly, uh, don't have time to go into it all and not there, so I can't give you a first-hand blow-by-blow description of it all. However, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of all this. I did, did, did um, uh, speak with Murray Richardson um, of uh, Highland Beef the other day about one of the, um, one of the, one of the outcomes was that uh, there's an expectation of the world, of those that count, that the um, uh, the consumer, the end consumer, and businesses who are actually retailing um, take up some of the slack of the initiatives to um, save the world. Now, that's a 
roundabout way of saying um, basically, uh, look, there are some businesses already doing this a lot, uh, and certainly the guys in the United States that that, um, that Highland Beef uh, supply to are doing that, and it's something that they hadn't probably thought too much about just yet. Um, they are absolutely um, providing, you know, security, somewhat security for farmers um, back here in Australia who are supplying and oh, fattening the um, Highland Beef beef. Um, so it's an interesting thing, you know, there's a call out across the world that there's got to be more accountability and I totally understand and get that and I, I think that's a great thing. Um, how that plays out, you know, what does accountability look like? What is it, what, in, what, what is, how will retailers or how will end users produce, well, producers, the people who eat it and the people who are retailing um, at that end, sort of the far end, uh, opposite end of the farmers really, um, what their um, obligations are or accountability to to the food system and to getting back to well you know how those farm, that food produced uh, on farms ethically environmentally conscientious and yada yada it'll be interesting to see I have touched on before you know my thoughts on well where does this all go when uh, the accountability might go a little bit spare a bit, bit over the top uh, whereby people are sort of, um, uh, where, you know, imp- what's imposed upon them is some sort of a quota for, you know, the emissions that they they are directly or indirectly re- um, uh, responsible for, more indirectly. Like if you buy a, a food item and there's some emissions that's been um, uh, calculated for that particular food item, you know, say beef, and I think that's probably something that's going to happen, you know, it's probably on the top of the list for people that are wanting, wanting to kind of verify and uh, quantify the, the emissions, and it has already basically been done, but it's so site-specific, so many variables there, um, that, you know, you're going to you're going to be clocking up emissions kind of in you know, hit a quota hit a, hit a, hit a, hit a time where you you've gone beyond a quota in a month or a week or a day or something and then there's something imposed on you I've mentioned it before I don't know you're going oh here he goes again but I just you know it's one of those things I'm just going to put it out there and see I don't think it's happening tomorrow but a lot of these things that kind of you know um, are imposed on the world as we've had other, a number of them in the last couple of years, it's that boiling frog thing. It's like, oh, no, that's okay. No, I'm happy to sign that. Oh, I'm happy to have something measured or, you know, um, sort of monitored. It's like, really? I mean, that's the whole, the whole um, even you, you oh, I don't, those things where you go to a supermarket and they say, like, frequent, not frequent flyer, do they? It's sort of something or others where they go, you want to use your card, and then they're just sort of, you know, rounding up. Um, information on you and what you consume and so on. So that's that's sort of like a pretty old and um, uh, reasonably established one that everyone's generally used to. But, you know, where does it all finish? I don't know. But what I do want to talk about, we're staying on the topic of beef, is, oh, no, just before we do that, I've got a couple more. Last week I did uh, rabbit it on about some lovely um, feedback we'd been given from people. And um, once again, I have um, I've gone to the podcast, uh, Apple podcast in this case, um, website or, the, or more my podcast just to see what uh, some nice people said. And, and, and again, I've failed to actually open the things up enough to then, then actually read the whole thing. But here we go. I'll try one. Charlie brings an earthy, hearty rumour, humour, 
<laughs> rumour. I do. I probably do too. Talk about too many rumours. Charlie uh, brings an earthy, hearty humour to the conversation of regeneration, renewal and stewardship of our land and the earth, full of practical wisdom, inspiration and joy in the gift and grace of living on the land, rural, semi-rural and urban. This is where I didn't finish. A vital conversation and connection for country folk and their, ooh, I'm going to say it's city, city cousins. It does go on. There's another lovely one. Um, wonderful podcast with so much useful information as someone with chronic conditions caused by modern farming practices. I love this podcast and am inspired to find ways to support regenerative farming to help our climate, the environment and our health. Well done, team, and well done you, the grass-fed carnivore, uh, with your little thing out there. Um for saying such lovely things to me, to us. Oh, my posture is terrible. Looking at the video in, in the uh, on the machine in front of me there of my good self. Um, so now to David Carter. He is one of the herd managers for Highland Beef. Caught up with David uh, at his home in Scone. He doesn't. He had to think he does own a little bit of land uh, still. Um, However, what he does do is he oversees the, uh, the management, so, so to speak, of a number of different properties in that region, heading sort of from Scone all the way um, up near Tamworth um, and, and out west to of farmers who um, he doesn't manage their farms, but he certainly oversees the induction and sort of the, um, the general management of the animals that Highland Beef place on their farmer, member farmer um, properties. Um, that's his current job. He's done so many different interesting, wonderful things. We, we sort of get stuck into you, – you'll pick up his voice straight away. He's got a beautiful, beautiful dulcet tones, does David, and uh, he tells a wonderful story about um, where that, that, um, that got him one day. Uh, and, again, you know, a bit like the, the, the thing I just um, uh, read out there, you know, it was, it was a – David's a bit of a health scare – that, that um, turned him to in a different direction in terms of his health and his eating and no doubt his thinking. Um, really enjoyed this very casual sit in the backyard at his uh, his house in Scone and before and then uh, that afternoon or that, no, straight after actually, not afternoon, we went and visited a couple of, well, one, one particular property outside of Scone that, um, that is uh, fattening cattle, file and beef. A beautiful, beautiful property. Loved it. Beautiful babbling brook and lush pastures and beautiful looking cattle. Nice people. Uh, David Carter is, and his story, you'll be listening to immediately after I stop rabbiting on, on the regenerative journey right now. David Carter, here he is. Okay, David Carter, welcome to, oh, look at this little doggy here, welcome to the regenerative journey and welcome to the your backyard here in Scone, <laughs> on the outskirts of Scone. Thank you so much, Charlie. It's, it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, we are about an hour late, aren't we? <laughs> we got here, well, I got here just a little bit after the designated hour and um, sun was shining, sussed out the spot. And the um, the neighbour decided to start mowing his lawn. Start mowing? Yes, my word. And the aircraft flying over. There's a few... Uh, a few distractions. A few distractions, but you'll <clears throat> overcome those. Well, as I said to you before, I interviewed Terry McCoskett early in the year at Botanic Gardens in Brisbane. And... Um, uh, we had to contend with mowers, tractors, um, construction noise, aircraft, 
and I was amazed at how clean it all ended up being. Um, we've taken our headphones off so we don't actually get distracted because <laughs> they're, they're picking up all the background noise. But Reese, my uh, my editor in chief, my produ- production man, he's a wizard with um, like cleaning all this sort of stuff up. So <clears throat> here we are in Scone, and what I what I generally do, David, is take my guests to the happy place. Um, now. It's in their garden, their farm, um, their place of work. In this instance, um, we thought it best to, to to do the interview in a somewhat controlled environment, mm-hmm. <laughs> apart from neighbour activities. <laughs> um, so we're in your backyard, um, and the question that I'm prompted to ask is, you know, in your case, um, not necessarily about your backyard, but why Scone? Why here? Is this your happy place? Is this part of the world your happy place? Absolutely. This is my, this is my very much my happy place, my backyard. I spend quite a bit of time here. I, I'm very proud of it. Uh, yes, and and we do have a long history here in the Upper Hunter, as I, I mentioned to you. We'll, we'll get to that. Don't spoil it all. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> but uh, this is our little sanctuary, Charlie. Yeah, this is where we like to uh, love it. Just come and, and and be on our own, my <coughs> wife and I. That we're all our children have grown and doing their thing, but uh, we like to come out here and just enjoy the peace, solitude and the sunshine when we can get it. So, Well, the sun is shining now, which is wonderful, um, because you've had how much rain the last week, over the weekend? Uh, we had 60 millimetres over the weekend, Saturday. 60 millimetres. It's nuts, isn't it? We had, um, we've had just fitting here with Matek. Matek here. Oh, just stay up there, will you? Um... Uh, yeah, sixty mil. It's just. I mean, we, we sat we sat down in our chairs just to be in the lawn, the newly mowed lawn. <laughs> well, I couldn't do it over the weekend for you. Though. I thought I'd get into it quickly this morning. But. We're sitting next to a mulberry tree to set the scene, which is just mulberrying at the moment. There's, have you had any off that yet? Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're starting yeah. to sweeten. They're starting to sweeten. Yeah, they're a little tart at the moment, but uh, within days, I'm sure a bit of the sunshine. Are we allowed to tell people about this over here? You can. Was that acquired? Um, Anonymously, somehow. No, no, no. It was uh, all through legal channels. <laughs> <laughs> it's an amazing fire, basically a fire pit. It's a big um, screen that the that uh, is used or was used in a coal mine um, of a washery. The, yeah. A washery, yeah. The the, the, um, uh, the Hunter. Yeah, it's going in the Hunter Valley, the Northern Hunter Valley, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, and Hunter Valley is known uh, in many circles as a. Um, uh, well, a lot of coal mines here, isn't there? There's some very large ones just here at Musselbrook, just south of Scone. How close are they to the Scone? Are they? Uh, do they sort of uh, thirty kilometres? So does that <clears throat> does that cause um, irritation for people, or kind of a thing? Are they are they creeping uh, towards Scone? Are people going? You know, have they got an issue with it? The Upper Hunter Shire Council have maintained a policy uh, throughout many years now of uh, sort of keeping coal mines at bay. Okay, and uh, uh, so they're predominantly located in the in the Musselbrook Shire. Area, but as I said, it's about thirty kilometres. At times, people uh, can, uh, so, you know, they say that they can smell the effects. Really? So they can literally they can smell the coal, or the, yeah, the, 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 the yeah, yeah. sulphurous smell. Like yeah, that. right. Um, occasioned at coal mines if we get a southerly wind blowing. Is that because sulphur is released? You know, as you know, like that's just a part of the mining process. The sulphur's, or is that part of washing, or what's what is that? Um, uh, some of the mines were prone to spontaneous combustion, and in particular, two just on the proximity of the edge of Musselbrook, proximity of Musselbrook, they were spone, uh, as I said, they were prone to spontaneous combustion for many years. So the coal would ignite upon uh, in the air. presence of oxygen really? in the atmosphere. So um, 
How'd they put that out? I guess relatively easily with that. Bury it with bury it. Bury it with clay. Yeah. If they could. Right. Uh, if they couldn't get to it, then they just had to burn. Really? Mm. It's a bit like, <clears throat> I was in the States a couple of years ago. I don't know where this is going, David. I wasn't thinking we were going to talk about coal and, and now gas. I was in the States some years ago um, around LA and um, the bushfires, those massive bushfires of 20, geez, when was that? 20, um, eight, 17, 18 <clears throat> over there. And knowing or understanding that there were gas leaks that, they couldn't contain it just burning for years years decades maybe even yeah incredible Mm. let's get back on track um david um let's start we've started at scone lovely scone which is now bypassed which i didn't bypass because i had to come into scone and have a coffee at the bar oh the bar did you yep what was it like it was great was it a bit slow the lady said she made me a cappuccino first <clears throat> and then said, then remembered it was a latte, so she had to redo it. Oh, dear. A decaf. <laughs> that okay. was fine. I actually <laughs> ran into a mate, a schoolmate. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Small world. Small world. Yeah, no, no, getting smaller. And we had a bit of a chat while the coffee turned up. Um, no, it was lovely. And um, so, Scone, here we are. And you're going to tell us um, about your family's connection to Scone and the district. But let's talk about you. Like, when when did you appear on the scene? How far do we want to go back into your journey? And this is this, this, this podcast, David, is called The Regenerative Journey. Um, it's not necessarily means that every person has to be a regenerative farmer or kind of have a, a compelling, amazing, story of regeneration in their life or something. I find that people generally do, you know, as people get older and they progress through life and they have their learnings and their, dare I say, failures or ups and downs that they kind of, there is a a cycle of regeneration of some sort, mind, body, spirit. Um, It always comes out. Yeah. Um, no, No pressure. No, no, no pressure. No pressure whatsoever. So where do you want to start, David? Do you want to start at, um, you know, where were you born? Were you born in, in Scone District Base Hospital? Yes. You were. But as far as, it's interesting that you mentioned regenerative farming. And well before that term, term was, was used, uh, Trisha and I, my wife, we've had our own uh, cattle business for, oh dear, probably... 35 plus years now and we were like not unlike everyone I suppose that I knew at the time that set stocking was the done thing was a thing yeah because your father did it and your grandfather and so forth and just about everyone else you knew did it Mm. but after a number of years we could experimented with just putting our, all our cattle, a lot of them, into one larger mob and closing our paddocks up and then moving our cattle more frequently mm. from paddock to paddock, and that seemed to work for us quite well. So, And when did you, when you start doing that? I guess, curiosity. Uh, I guess probably 20 years ago. Yep. And was that on the back of reading, seeing, understanding? Yeah, yeah. you just went, oh, hang on, I've heard about this. Well, I guess it, back then it was probably... Even terms cell grazing. Cell grazing, I cell think grazing. Was, the, was the term. Yeah. 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 Where, do you remember where you. <laughs> Sounding Oh, dear, sorry. <laughs> that, it sounded like in your front. In your front. <laughs> in your front yard. Oh, dear. I'm sorry. Oh, mate. Are they your neighbours? <laughs> no. <laughs> Some of the local council uh, oh, right. folk, I think. <laughs> So did you, do you remember, have you read, saw something? Always, always been uh, an avid reader and, uh, yep. and I 
I did read, th- you know, articles initially on that and uh, piqued my interest and I became more mm. and more interested in that and, and wanted to learn more. Mm. And so then we, uh, once we, I guess we understood the basic fundamentals of it, we decided we'd try and implement that ourselves. And where, where did that happen? We, we've jumped away from. We've gone straight from zero to somewhere. But where, where did that? Where did that happen? In your farm, your your, your, your the land you were doing that on. I might put my jacket back on. Yeah, uh, my family had property at an area called Stewartsbrook and Maluma. To where's that? So it's approximately sixty kilometres east of Scone. Okay. Yep. Hmm. Is it quite? Is it uh, Barrington Tops? Correct. Yeah, right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so the, I guess uh, the highest peak on the Barrington Tops, Mount Barrington, is sort of the headwaters of the Stewartsbrook Valley. Yep. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we they had country there and that's where we sort of kicked off with that. Mm. And then we acquired some further property ourselves, Trish and I, and we were, we were doing that on our own property as well. So, mm. so let's go back to Bourne uh, Scone Base Hospital. Um uh, where did you Where did you grow up? Like where was Where was home? Well, uh, Stewartsbrook predominantly. That was yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then um, Trish and I moved to Queensland uh, many years ago, and we were up there for a few years, and then decided oh, you've to just you've just missed a big chunk of your life. Did you get married at like what when you were two? No, there must be a few years between <laughs> married between <laughs> moving out there, and then so you moved out there, life on a farm. Mm-hmm. For, um, for siblings, yeah, um, spent youth, adolescence there, and and then into early twenties, and then met Trish, and and uh, as I said, we decided we'd like to uh, see some other parts of Australia, and so we were away for a number of years, and uh, and had some businesses running, and then uh, we sold those up, and then moved back here with the view of setting up a, a, a livestock business. Mm. This is going to be a really short interview, David, because you already jumped in. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm going to keep dragging you back to to adolescence, family life. Farm. Did you enjoy the farm, living on the farm? I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah I loved it. Fam, family, big family, small family? Uh, uh, mine was a smaller family, yeah. but part of a larger family. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I guess you... When you when you have it, when you come from an ancestral uh, generational farming family, you seem to have a, a real attachment to that land. You know what I mean? Totally. Yep. And uh, it was always part of me. I didn't think I would go anywhere else, but of course, you know, you, you, your views do change as you as you uh, as you age. But it's never left me. And it was one of those things. Whenever I went there, if I was away and then came back, and I went back, straight away you felt. This feeling of familiarity—you know—it's something that is part of you. It made you feel at ease, uh, you know, de-stressed you, if you like. And you still have the opportunity to do that because you—you've got a little—you've got a, uh, some still some land nearby. Yes, we do. We lease some country just here south of Scone. Yeah, we've had that for many, many years now. We we run a small stock or stud there and a few cattle. Which we'll get we'll get back to. So, um, so you was your childhood. Um, did you spend it in paddocks? Were you wild child? Were you? Did you get up to mischief? Did you? Yes. Did you get kicked out of school? <laughs> did you? Did you do your school in Sky? Yes. Yep. Yes. No. No. Not kicked out of school, but um, I always loved 
the time away from school. I was academically, uh, I did quite well. Mm. But uh, I always Were you the ducks of... uh, No, 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 not quite. But I did quite well. Yeah. But I loved my time, you know, in the bush. Yep. And did all those normal things that all young fellows do, apart from working. Uh, Hunting and riding and... You know, just being around animals and being part of nature. Horses still um, part of your world, then? A very, a very big part, yeah. And so, school, upbringing on a farm, any sort of any life lessons you learned there or sort of events or things that happened that. Um, Sneed, hang on. Oh. Okay. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Bless you. Oh, hell. Perhaps it's our fragrant garden. <laughs> <laughs> Could, but there is something that smells beautiful. What is that? Uh, I can't, there's no flowers that have jumped out at me, but it is, it is um, something beautiful. Um, any life lessons that you, that you sort of, you know, sort of foundational things that happened out there, understandings, thoughts, events, memories that kind of were, yeah, been foundational, pivotal? Yes. Uh, I was the eldest, so I was always given um, the role of responsibility, if you like. Um, uh, you know, I, it does teach you to be uh, perhaps a little bit older than what you use uh, and to take on a role of perhaps leadership. And I've always found that those traits are strongly innately part of me so I guess being placed into that role it's helped me then through my life the way that I approach things approach people approach projects my mindset towards uh, my work ethic was it was it on, was it onerous somewhat did you go did you want I just want to be a kid <clears throat> and I'm being given these responsibilities, or you probably didn't, didn't have it, yeah. At times, but it was just part of what you did. <clears throat> and I was always happier or happiest when I was busy. Mm. I've never been one to sort of be idle, and I've always sorted out, uh, you know, some, some, some sort of activity to keep me active and, and both physically and mentally. So. And I guess um, what I understand, and certainly my childhood was 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 uh, one of activity and usefulness. You know, I don't know many country kids who, certainly my generation, and ones I know um, who are still school kids who are useless. <laughs> if I could be that <laughs> that blunt about it, I mean, you just you can't get away. You can't be on a farm and get away with standing around not being helpful. You get the smack in the head. <laughs> Or you get run over by a mob of cattle or something, you know. <laughs> My father would always say, don't ever stand there with your hands in the pockets in the yards, ask how you can be helping. As I keep saying, and I'm going to repeat it, the four most amazing, lovely words in the English language to, to come out of a child's mouth is, how can I help? Mm. You know, I'm always encouraging my kids to, to do that. Um, and I think that just sits and it's not onerous, well, might, maybe sometimes, but um, for them. But <clears throat> I think it's a really important thing that, that um, children understand that, you know, if they want to get on in life and get on with people and jobs and 
you know, it builds resilience and, and it kind of and it, and it does, I guess, you know, create some responsibilities because if people, kids ask if they can help and they get jobs, jobs get done, then um, parents go, oh, actually pretty good at that. Well, actually really helpful, you know, and then things become, and it's, a, it's all part of being a leader or leadership and... Absolutely. Isn't it? Don't you think that it sets a really strong foundation for your children? Oh, Totally. Totally. Do you think that? Do you think there's enough of that in the world at the moment? No, absolutely not. What, what, what are your What are your um, benchmarks for that? What do you see or hear or what, what's what, what's where? I mean, I have to agree with you, but well, I'm just interested to know what. <clears throat> where do you see that play out in the world? Trish and I have been in business now for, as I said, over 35 years, probably 38 years, something like that. Over those over that time, we have been been employers ourselves. So apart from working for ourselves in our own business, we've also employed quite a number of people over the years. I've found that, and I I don't want to be critical of many in the younger generation, uh, but that work ethic that you and I just discussed then is not as strong, if not at all there, in, in many of the younger people, which is a real shame, a real shame. Uh, I'm not so particularly speaking of people from the land, and I don't want to, again, sound biased. Uh, we've employed a lot of people from, with our businesses that we've had, from towns and, and larger cities. Mm. Uh, and it really does highlight the, I guess, the difference in the way that Perhaps those children have been given a, a grounding in life initially. And again, I, I don't mean to sound biased, but you know, and it, it does seem that that is is really the evident, self evident, quite self evident. What What do you think makes up a, what's a, what's a, what makes up a good grounding in a child's life? What are, What are some of the principles or the you know? Well, responsibility, as we discussed, uh, that. Taking on a role, being given a role, being able to to carry out that role the way that people would expect it to be done, and the way that you expect it to be done. But uh, honesty, integrity, uh, those leadership attributes that you and I discussed earlier, um, I, and I, I think just being uh, there that people know that they can rely upon you. So if they are somewhere else and you're working autonomously, you're on your own, they know that they can leave you and the job will be done. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. <clears throat> totally. And I guess that, that you're right. That's not something that... I mean, for some it might be innate. and For others it may have been... Um, uh, not bashed into them, but certainly uh, that's all part of their upbringing. But it, I totally agree; it's really, I think it's really important. And I'm not saying you can't learn those. Things. No, totally. That's the other. That's the other part. I mean, you, <clears throat> you can you can learn those things. Mm. Uh, everyone has the ability to do that, but whether or not they choose to take them on or uh, want to have anything to do with them is always a, always a, a challenge. <clears throat> and also, I, I guess also in the workplace, the expectation that that will happen. I think there's a lot of workplaces where, and this, this could go down all sorts of rabbit holes, but the expectation of, <clears throat> like, 
but that's okay. That's not in your nature. Um, you know, I don't want to offend you by kind of, you know, what may seem as challenging you on on things. You know, I think that there's there's tends to be um, a lot of that in the world that, you know, people just aren't given a hard enough time sometimes, you know. We have, we have or seemingly have become uh, a little soft, perhaps, do you think, in, in our <laughs> modern society? <laughs> oh, I think so. I mean, I, I, look, I'm, I'm no bloody, you know, expert in all, any of this of myself and I'm not perfect by any means. That's not what I'm getting at. But I, I referenced my grandfather earlier today when you were telling me about your family history there <clears throat> and he went to the war. And I've said this before on interviews, I'm sure, but I feel like I'm going to bore anyone. <clears throat> you know, he, he signed up for the First World War when he was 15, turned 16 on the boat with his horse and his bridle and his saddle and his experience as a, <clears throat> as a farmer at Mossvale. And um, or in, in that sort of you know south not south coast that sort of <clears throat> you know Kyama now that, that, that part of the world dairy industry and um, and he jackrooed up at uh, north of Moree somewhere but might have been between Moree and, and um, Narrabri. <clears throat> anyway, that's my benchmark. Yeah, I didn't know mass from my head when I was fifteen. Yeah, you know, and that was normal. I'm sure there's many, 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 many men and women went away to war, and, and that was kind of expected and normal. And they they were resilient and they got through it. But how many people of that generation today could go and do that? Like, no, that's it. None. Well, that great yarn about you know the the, the the boy who helped his father plough a paddock down in Victoria. Tell me, you know this one. <clears throat> I'm going to get names and I'll get the date right because there's a there's a specific date of references. But uh, there was a I think it was a First World War vet veteran who had been in and out of hospital after the war <clears throat> for some time, and he needed a paddock ploughed and and um, anyway I can't remember whether he asked his son to do it or his son just went and did it. He was nine ploughed some number of acres with a horse and a plough on his own at nine year old, nine years of age. And his father had been in the hospital anyway, so the son went, I've you know, finished the job, Dad. And he said, well, you can choose anything you want. <clears throat> you know, you've, been, you've done that for me, I'll do something for you. What do you, what do you want? And he said, I want to <clears throat> go to Sydney and for the opening of the Harbour Bridge. So he jumped and his dad said, well, <clears throat> how can I say no to that? You know, him at age nine. So he jumped on his horse. This is, a Vic, this is in the Gippsland or somewhere. Mm-hmm. Jumped on his horse, rode his horse all the way to Sydney for the opening of the Harbour Bridge and rode all the way back on his own. That just speaks volumes, doesn't it? It's incredible. What we were talking about, that foundation. Incredible. That young people had then. And that wasn't, those things weren't taught. You didn't go to like resilience school. <laughs> Maybe we need a resilience school. Maybe we need to open one up. Not, well, I'm, again, I wouldn't necessarily be the teacher at it or think I would be worthy of that. But um, I think there's something in there somewhere. Absolutely. Let's get off kids um, <clears throat> and all that. Um, so farm, school in town, left school, and then what did you do immediately after school? Don't go too quick. <laughs> Don't jump straight to your Trish again. No. <laughs> I, there must have been, you didn't get married at 18. You know, I worked day. on the land and yeah. uh, I worked on the land and I worked for myself <laughs> and I also worked for others. Uh, and uh, I was very, very fortunate to uh, work for an, uh, an older gentleman in the uh, Luma area where I was from. And he, he was, I think, probably my greatest mentor. Ah, okay. As far as. What was his name? 
his name was Wallace Collison. And Wallace he, Collison, and he was a great uh, name. He was a he was a World War Two veteran, and uh, he was quite an a, older aged man when I worked for him, but um, still reasonably active. And uh, he gave me an, uh, a lot of rain, and uh, I wouldn't say that I uh, was without mistake because he, he he did correct me a few times, but he was also just a great teacher. But he did it in a way that. He wasn't um, uh, sort of micromanaging you. He just, as I said, he gave you the rain. Uh, you know, sometimes if things didn't go quite to plan, then, you know, there'd be a quiet word about that. And uh, and away you go again. But he, he imparted upon me an enormous amount of um, life uh, lessons, wisdom, and things that I still carry with me each and every day. And I do think about it often because that is a very big part of who I was as a young person. So I worked for him for a number of years and, uh, as I said, always actively involved with horses. He was a, a, a great horseman, had a lot of heritage-bred stock horses. And uh, he said to me, I broke some horses in for him when I was there, and he said to me, well, why don't you stay on and use my yard facilities here? And um, I, we will kind of like family by then, really. And uh, so I did that. I, I broke horses in there for a number of years and, and that, so the, it, 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 that bond grew even stronger and again, he was able to impart uh, his um, knowledge and wisdom on upon me as far as that uh, that task was involved as well. So, yes, again, there's, there's one of those sort of figures in your early life that you uh, you you just carry you you carry through life with you. It's one of those men who just made an enormous impression upon me, and uh, not only, as I said, not only physically in the way that he was able to impart knowledge, but just the way that you conducted yourself as a young man. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do carry that with me, and I and I've told my children, which they're all adults now, but. I've told them over many years about a lot of the uh, the times that I spent with him. Like the time, and I know this is perhaps not quite on the subject, but... No, nothing is off topic. Don't worry. We had a particularly good season, and it was this time of year in the spring, and... Yes, relax a bit there. I'm to back a bit. And uh, the clover was getting away on us. It was, you know, over a foot high. Uh, so sort of mid-spring getting towards getting on towards the later spring and he had uh, it's sort of the country was low undulating at the front of the property and then it sort of raised out into some hillier and steeper country toward the back and we were sort of midway out along the property driving along a, a spur so a ridge and he said oh I think I'll just go down here now I don't know whether he was you were riding horses no, sorry we are in his Sorry, we were in his uh, riding his grey horse. That's what he called his grey horse, oh, yeah. which is the old Land Cruiser. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> always rode, yes, we're always on horseback, but this particular time we were riding the four-wheeled horse. Mm. He said, I just think I'll drive down here. Now, I don't know whether he was having a lend of me or what he was doing at the time, but it all happened very, very quickly. And all I can remember is by the time we got about halfway down this rather steep side, mm. the vehicle had sort of got over onto the two wheels on the left-hand side where I was sitting in the, in the 
front of the vehicle and all I could see was the ground getting closer and closer and he's laughing his head off and uh, for, luckily for us as we got a little further just past that point it sort of he, the country just sort of evened out again and it just sort of came back over onto its wheels and he kept driving <laughs> without giving it any sort of any sort of second thought whatsoever apart from having a good laugh and he'd probably done it so many times he knew that he goes I want to show this young bloke yeah, absolutely that's a classic so what was, the, what was the lesson in there? Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> not to take everything off face value. <laughs> any other, given he was such a, um, you know, I guess a mentor, any any other sort of things that he, um, you know, uh, learnings you, you, you had from him that have stood you in good stead, stood you in good stead? Yeah. Uh, he was not only, as I said, a, a, you know, just a, a wonderful teacher, but, he was also involved with the Scone um, Camp Draft and Rodeo Committee, and he invited me to um, to be a part of that. So that was really my first foray into any sort of uh, public engagement, and I got involved with it and met a lot of different people. But importantly, saw how how those things worked. Mm. Community sort of community groups and things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so he was a you know he, he gave me the opportunity to uh, to learn, understand, and be a part of that. Mm. And then of course you know I went on and did a lot of that through my life. So, mm. but that was again one of uh, one of my first lessons in in being able to you know be a part of a community organisation and, and know how to conduct yourself. Mm. Tell me, um, so let's move on to um, did did that did that um, I guess it was Jackarooing was it Jackarooing or just, just yeah, yeah station yeah, and stuff yeah um, what happened next uh, I did meet Trish my wife and what age were you and <laughs> I, I was in my early twenties and yeah. and where'd you meet well her parents had some country uh, they were from. Epping in Sydney, but they hmm. uh, they acquired some country in the Stewartsbrook area, and uh, that's where we met. And and we decided to at a hang on, don't at sneak a dance. away at a dance. What I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> at a local dance. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Were you? Did you? Were you a bit of a twinkle toes? Ah oh, dear. Um, did you, a bit of a <laughs> Canadian three step uh, fiend? Well, it may have been a three step mixed with a four step or a six step. <laughs> I don't know, but it was uh, it was what we could make of it at the time. <laughs> no, um, but uh, we had a lot of fun and uh, mosquito. Uh, right I know they've been attacking me. Um, well, yeah, it's one on you now. Oh, but yeah. uh, that's where we met, and uh, and we decided we'd. Uh, as I said, I'd like to see a bit more of Australia, so we went to Queensland and mm. and uh, and lived there for a while before we decided to come back here. Uh, how long are you away for? Like age, uh, you know, about four or five years. Four, and did, yeah. did you come back to settle down? Did you go? Well, you know, had you had you married on the road, or did you? Come yeah, yeah, yeah. And and we came back here. We got married here just after we got back here, and we decided to come back. I guess my parents were. Aging, and uh, and they lived. That was still out there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, my father, uh, he ended up unfortunately quite unwell with uh, muscular dystrophy, and it got to a point where he became well, sort of semi incapacitated. 
and couldn't do things for himself a lot. And so they, um, we came back here and, and helped them for a while, but then they decided that they, they really should be, you know, in town or closer to facilities. Because mm. the drive used to take, you know, a good three quarters of an hour or so. Mm. And uh, so they decided to sell and then move to Scone. So, uh, but again, probably came back predominantly for that reason, uh, and then also returning home as well. Yeah, perhaps more my home than what Trisha's was. But um, again, as I said to you earlier, it's part of what who you are and and, uh, and what you're about. So uh, we came back here, got married, set up. Um, uh, our sort of livestock business, and I continued to do some work on the on the land, but then uh, also did some further study at university, and then worked in both uh, the mining industry and agriculture at the same time. When you went to Queensland, did, was that somewhat of a hero's journey? Did you did you have challenges? You you know you had Trish there as your your companion, did you have challenges and kind of epiphanies that led you home again? That you sort of, you know, did the full circle and things happened that kind of led you back to to here? Yeah, I guess um, your parents, you know. Ray, I said you better get your ass home now. <laughs> you know what I said to you earlier about um, being the eldest and given responsibility? Mm. And when I went away, I guess I I wasn't there, you know. There was a void, and and my as I said, my father became more and more incapacitated, and uh, uh, so I always had that in the back of my mind, and perhaps you know the the, the pull of of that the, the 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 home ties the you know the sense of responsibility again drew me back here and. You know, it was something that Trish and I discussed, and we were happy to do. And, and you know, it was a great decision yeah, in in hindsight, uh, no, and nothing we've ever regretted. So, and while you're away, did, was there other things that happened up there that kind of pushed you into you know challenging situations, or you you learned a lot from, or you know, there were there were kind of. Again, learnings. I I keep on going back to those questions because I just I think it's fascinating what you know life is there to be there to be experienced and learned from. What else happened up there? You're on stations up there and things. No, I didn't work on the land. I I uh, we started our own business as uh, uh, as an arborist. Really? So I became and I went and trained. Mm-hmm. Tree lopper. That was a that, that was a term that was used widely then. Uh, uh, but you term. were an arborist. I was. Yeah, I, be- arborist. I became uh, I became qualified. Yeah, you are. And uh, uh, and I also then ran our business, and that's when we first started employing people. Mm. And uh, that was our first uh, foray into business. And uh, again, it's like everyone. It's. It's trials and tribulations. It's steep learning curves. Um, but after we, you know, I guess twelve months or so, we started to build a bit of momentum, rhythm, understanding of it more, and and uh, it became quite successful. 
And where were you based? All over? No. All, all money, whereabouts was his home? On the Gold Coast. Goldie. Wow. Mm. But it, it's sort of the business, as it grew, expanded from there to uh, probably as far south as uh, Moolombar and then as far north as Brisbane and out to uh, uh, Bow Desert, Canungra, those sort of areas. Mm. Mm. Anyway, you were see so you were up at you you spent you finished a bit, a bit of time up a tree on the end of a chainsaw then. Originally, I did. Were the, do, do, was it, were the were the were you on ropes and all that sort of gear, or you just no? Like, because in those days, uh, thankfully it, today it's much different. But in those days, you had a climbing harness and a and a, and a rope, uh, a lanyard. Yeah, and and that was it. You just shuffled your way. Up, oh, so, the, up the trunk. Oh, so no, you didn't have a rope up, up and over. You're actually just doing the shimmy up the up the trunk. No, those techniques weren't used then, because they weren't around. Or they just too hard, and like, ah, oh, we can get up this tree with it. No, it's not something that was sort of um, uh, adopted practice. into the industry until much later. And uh, there was a, a lowering rope sometimes if the limb that you needed to remove was yeah needed to be large and then controlled from the ground. Yeah. But there was no climbing rope. You weren't suspended by a rope. You're the only, the only uh, uh, contact you had with with the tree was the lanyard that went around the trunk and then onto your climbing harness. What about boots? Which Did was you... rather rudimentary to Oh, totally. Say. What about boots? Did you have a boots with spikes in them or anything? Yeah, you had a climbing spikes. Yeah. To your boots. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that was it. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Do you have any near misses? Uh... Yeah, it's a long time ago. Nothing of any real note that I can remember, but I'm sure there may have been. But um, you, you were here having a chat, so it ended up okay. Yeah, everything's okay. <laughs> uh, you don't have a hobble. I didn't notice you hobbling around there. No, no, no. I think um, uh, there's nothing of any sort of real note. But, <laughs> but thankfully, as I said, as the industry evolved, um, they've. The uh, the work practices now within the industry, are, you know, they're mm. world world class. They're, they're, there's an enormous attention to safety because it's a highly high, uh, highly dangerous industry oh, to totally. work within. Totally. And uh, uh, as I said, it's you wouldn't looking at it now, you, you wouldn't even mm. dreamt of what it was like, you know, thirty or forty years ago to be actively working in that industry. So, what's your favourite tree? Actually, an, uh, an English oak. Which one? Oh, English oak, rubber. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Why? Why? Um, this is loaded, by the way. This is a loaded question. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Only because it's my favourite tree, too. Oh, really? Yeah, one of them, yeah. yeah. Oaks, generally. I have a number, but that one would have to be my absolute favourite. Mm. Um, I guess a number of things. One, they're very slow growing. So they, they, they take an enormous amount of time to mature and often you won't see it in your lifetime. Um, the way that they grow is architecturally beautiful. Mm. They are an absolutely stunning tree. But they they grow in such a way that they can fit into just about any landscape. It doesn't matter where it is. Um, they, they provide enormous amenity. They, they're a wonderful shade tree. Um, but they're pleasure to be around because they are such so visually appealing 
Uh, and the fact that they take so long, you really appreciate the fact when you see a mature one, just what they've actually seen in their life, because it's taken them a long time to get to that point. Mm. And I guess, um, you know, it's, it's, again, when you go back and, and you see them in the UK, and some of those trees in there are hundreds and hundreds of years old, especially some of those ones at Kew Gardens. Mm. Uh, again, you just have an enormous respect for them. The other one that I've seen personally, Trisha and I, are those giant redwoods in North America. And standing alongside them, you feel just completely belittled, as everyone would say, mm. uh, who has done that. Again, the, what they've seen in their life is just remarkable. But uh, I think, um, from my point of view, uh, the English oak is, is the absolute favourite, without a doubt. Good call. Um, you know, they're one of my favourites. I have to thank thank a number of people for that love of my mother and good mate of mine's mother as well. They're just uh, beautiful trees and we, we plant them in our landscape of Bora wherever we can. Mm. Um, even though they're not native, which is sometimes comes under some criticism because they're not native. And I yeah. just say, well, if that's a big thing, well, maybe we should take the sheep and the cattle out and maybe we should piss off too because we're not native to this. No, 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 no. I, I, I mean, uh, natives do have a place mm. in our landscape. But, totally. But some of those um, you know, trees, especially English trees, fit so superbly within our Australian landscape. Well, then, I mean, they've been deciduous, and you know, they're great cyclers of minerals and nutrients because of their because of their that nature. You know, dropping Absolutely. their leaves and their shade and the cooling effect. And I know Clive Blazy down there, diggers in Victoria, and he bangs on about the you know the desert ash is a massive desert ash, and the Dramana um, uh, Heronswood, their their nursery there, and and. You know the, the temperature difference that he's me- he measures in summer. You know from under that tree to sort of outside, and it's you know it's it's, it's well known. Um, okay, trees. I'm glad we touched on the, trees. The other one that, that sorry, haven't I? Oh, no, the no, other no. one that um, uh, I'm particularly fond of because they there are many of them here in the upper hunters. That's true. There are in other places, but uh, are the Morton Bay fig up here? Just go on. Yeah. Get out of here. And they've been planted, obviously. They're not in, in paddocks? In, in, in paddocks. Oh. So you do see them a lot um, on the coastal fringes in, in on ex-dairy farms. Yes. Yeah, totally. But I have, I've seen trees that are, you know, mature that could hide 40 head of cattle underneath them and you wouldn't see them in the summertime. But you are right. You can be riding out on a hot day somewhere, mustering, and uh, if there are stock underneath those trees and you have cause to go there or maybe you just want to go there anyway... There's a decided difference from mm. coming out of the direct sunlight into the shade of one of those trees. It's amazing, isn't it? Um, our I'm tree sure. man at Burrow. Oh, sorry, you go. You I'm go. sorry. Um, no, don't be sorry. Miley's being very effective. Miley is a classic. It's she is she Miley. Yes, she is just sitting here. She's quite unusual in that she sits there and she'll like put a paw on you and not look at you. We've got dogs like Billy and, and Red, who's a Marema, Billy being a Border Collie. They'll look at you and put their and paw, but she'll like just sit there looking totally different way and just paw as if... There like, she goes. There she goes. <laughs> You're quite funny, aren't you? Um, yeah, uh, Morton Bay Fig, I'm going to plant some at Burua. Um It's pretty frosty down there, but we, I reckon... I'm, no, they'll handle it. I'm going to put them into, um, as I've seen up at um, up near the scenic rim, at Tomarup Dairy up there in... Uh, uh, at the Tom Rupp's farm in um, the stumps of trees. 
Well, it's just beautiful fungal matter. It's all, you know... Really rich. Really rich. Put them in there, a bit of protection, stock and frost, and away they go. So I keep forgetting to do that, and now's the time of year to probably but do they, that. They, 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 they will handle here. that no, at, yeah. without any trouble. Yeah, incredible. Remember, here where we are, uh, where I came from, it sort of ranges from 600 metres to uh, 1,300-odd metres above... And frost. Sea level. Oh, yes. And snow. And snow. Yeah. Bloody hell. At times. Yeah. Um, okay, moving on to from trees to um, back. And so you did, was that your, when you when you were away, that was your um, Primary, being an arborist? Primary was, source of income. Yeah, until you got back here. <laughs> yeah. Did you go arboring? Is, it, do you, is that a word? <laughs> arboring when you got back here? Um, we, or did you we, go, no, we, we, changing? No, no, no. We went away for a uh, while and uh, went back to um, managing some some uh, cattle properties mm. and then looking after our own business and growing that mm. and then um, I took on a role in in uh, open cut mining here in Hunter. What were you doing there? Uh, initially as an operator and then um, became heavily involved in training. Yep. And, uh, Training operators. When yeah. you say operator, as in um, like operating machi- machinery. Yeah, and then yeah. Uh, that, and then also a focus on that, um, HR. Oh, yeah. And uh, working with uh, you know some of the departments that were involved in that in, in at the site that I was at. But it all became too much because I was trying to work there and then work for myself as well and grow that business and it just became too much so we decided to um, walk away from that and focus solely on growing our own business so but then I, I was offered consultancy work because of my qualifications that I'd You're funny. earned in the mining industry yep. um, and done at uni I decided to go and do some consultancy work I was offered the work and I said well okay I'll, I'll give that a go so then I did that for a number of years many years actually probably Ten years or more, and uh, and that led to uh, quite a number of different opportunities and meeting all sorts of different people, and and again uh, that training theme. Um, I was always very very conscious of you know helping people, making sure that they were safe because that's something that's drilled into you when you work in the mining industry, and uh, so we decided to um, build our own training registered training organisation in conjunction with a partner who I'd known for a lot of years and had uh, worked in mining as well. So we built that and had the business based uh, here in Scone, office in Scone, office in Newcastle, an office in Brisbane, an office in Mackay in Queensland. Really? Hmm. And uh, we grew that for a number of years and we we had uh, uh, training platforms in mining, manufacturing and agriculture and arboriculture. And I was invited during that time to be part of the, uh, uh, a group who, who uh, the government was putting together, the federal government at that level, to, with Agri-Foods Industry Skills Council in Canberra to... Uh, develop a national training framework for the arboriculture industry. Again, uh, yeah, the training and, and helping people. Uh, and I, I, I uh, was quite active in that for a number of years. Loved that. Mm. And 
again, keeping in mind that at the same time we're also growing our our livestock business and Trish was working. Trish has an accounting background, so she was working full-time. Our kids were growing up and, as I said, going on doing their things as well. So um, after a number of years, we divested our interests in the training business to our partner and, uh, and then focused more and more on our livestock business, bought some more country, um, and that was taking up more and more of our time. Mm. I'm going through this probably, a little, this is perhaps more the abridged version. There are a lot of stories in there, <laughs> as, you can be, as you can well appreciate. I imagine. Um, and then uh, one thing I do feel very, very passionate about, I became unexpectedly ill. I, I had a, a heart attack, a very bad heart attack, uh, which I was sort of completely unaware of as far as health was concerned. I was feeding my stallion one morning in, the, in, uh, in his yard and uh, felt an enormous sense of uh, just this crushing effect on my chest and lightheadedness and I couldn't speak and then that was it. I, down I went. So. And you woke up where? Where I fell, and I guess I, I thought, okay, well, I'm pretty sure I know what was going. I knew what was going on. I, I thought to myself, well, I'm not going to die here. I was on my own, and uh, I just said to myself, I, I'll get back and see Trish. So I actually. As I said, we have some country just south of Scone here. That's where it was. It's only a few kilometres, but I somehow drove back here. And I came inside. I got in, got myself out of the vehicle and got inside, but then Trish, I couldn't speak about anything else, and, and I sort of collapsed again, and, and that was it, off to the hospital. You probably drove past the hospital to get it, did you? Because it's only just down here, isn't it? I did. <laughs> I just, all, all I wanted to do was get back and, and, yeah, and, see, and see Trish. Yeah, I understand. Wow. I, have, I felt an enormous sense of impending doom, I suppose. Yeah, fair enough. Mm. Um, and they got you there. She got you there or someone got you yeah, there? Yeah, Trish did, yeah. Yeah. And then they got you somewhat better? Uh, well, after a f- uh, number of days straight in um, uh, operation and, and uh, yeah, it didn't did really affect me. Yes. Yeah. I've actually had two now. And, uh, two heart attacks or two stents? Both and, and uh, two, so, uh, two lots of operations. But I do feel very, very passionate about men and, and men's health. And uh, you, 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 we do somewhat take our, our health for granted. But um, life is fleeting. I'm, I'm very sorry. Molly's been very, very fleeting. Oh, no, she's cute. Um, but uh, life is fleeting and... and uh, uh, we don't have a lot of time here, and when you something like that happens, it makes you really appreciate the fact that how short our time here is. Looking for more information to assist your regenerative journey? Come join Charlie and his guests around the kitchen table, an online community of supporters, 
with exclusive access to the Regenerative Journey interview transcripts, live online Q&A sessions, a chance to engage with other like-minded people and more. Go to www.charliearnett.com.au forward slash the kitchen table. And if you're not totally satisfied with the value of your membership and wish to cancel it within the first two months, we will give you a full 100% refund, no questions asked. Now let's get back to this week's episode. I do feel very, very passionate about that and the fact that you're given a second chance... Um, I've now, as I said, it took me a while to recover, but now that I have, um, I've approached life differently. It changed our lives, Trish and I, both our lives, uh, in a way that I guess we appreciate what we have. Um, You place less importance on uh, perhaps material things not that we were materialistic anyway but do you know what I mean? Oh, totally. there, are, there are just there are things that are far more important in life than uh, you know what you have around you or, and it's more about being given that second chance and what you can actually do and the time you spend with the people that you love and uh, that's the way that we embrace life now. Well, um, I think that um, I reckon it's two or three. Sorry, just getting time codes there. Um, I haven't had that experience, but I imagine perspective changes. Mm, absolutely, you see, you see yourself and your life in a, in a different light. Mm. So, what do you what do you do differently now then? On the back of that? Oh well. Um, uh, just in the little things, like the way that we, um, you know, obviously you have to change your diet. Obviously, after what did you, what did you do? What did you change your diet? It's, um, it, that, that interests me. Doesn't? Oh, totally. Mm. This is about this. What the themes here? Just to jump in there, David, quickly is food farming, human and planetary health. Mm. Right? Not many people on this planet can escape being having some connection to those things. Prior to that happening. <clears throat> We, Trish and I have always been conscious of where our food comes from, but perhaps not, well, definitely not, uh, to the, uh, the degree following my heart attack, which now, and over the last ensuing five years or so, we've been very, very conscious about uh, sourcing our food. Because remember, when I grew up, and probably you're the same, when I grew up on the land... And I was only discussing this with a colleague a few days ago. Everyone grew their own vegetables. They, they had an orchard. They had chickens, right? You had meat readily available, so you killed a beast or a sheep or a pig or whatever it was. You had honey. So mm-hmm. you'd go and you either had hives yourself or you'd go and rub a beehive out <laughs> off a tree something. With your neighbour. I <laughs> <laughs> hooked over the fence. Uh, that's it. But, um, that's it. Do you know what I mean? Oh, totally. Everything was natural. Yep. Now, you fished. Yep. If, the, you know, if it was in the summertime, you had yabbies or whatever. It was, it was, it was all natural. Hmm. And, uh, and as I said now, Trish and I are very conscious about, you know, what the foods that we do eat and consume. And, you know, 
what effect that does have on the environment. And going way back, sorry, this is just jumping way back no. earlier to what we said earlier, with cattle, everyone had a set stocking regime. That was the way things were done, right? There are still people who do that. And again, you know, if that's just something that they do as part of their their um, you know their business plan, then perhaps that works for them. But it's great to see that it's being adopted more and more today on such a, a wider scale. People are becoming very, very conscious of the fact that it's not just the food that we actually eat, but where it actually comes from and the, the effect that it's actually having on the environment. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, so, so, the, the, so changing grazing tactics, habits mm. and strategies and so uh, are, are being more environmentally... And, and that's something that we've adopted ourselves mm. and, and still, still practice, even mm. though now it's on a small scale. When I when I had the, the first heart attack, we had a reasonable amount of country, but it just became too, too hard, too difficult to um, uh, to manage that at the time, and and so we we sort of sold sold most of it. Mm. But yeah, and it's not a decision that we re- we regret. We still play around down here. Mm. So. Well, you're still involved with with um, with cattle. Let's get to that because the reason I'm here in your backyard is is primarily through your association and my association with Highland Beef. Mm. Um, and as you may know, and our listeners would know well by now, um, that Highland Beef are sponsoring major sponsors of the Regenerative Journey Season Six, which I'm most grateful for, and it was through my. Um, association with Murray and knowing Murray for some years in a different um, role outside of Highland um, Highland Beef that um, we I've been working with Highland Beef for some months now and and we got to this point and and here we are which is awesome and loving the model um, what they're doing how did you tell me how you um, how you introduced to what was your contact point of contact how did you get involved and what are you what are you doing what are you doing with Highland Beef pastoral company, David. Well, first well you got to hang on. You got a mozzie. You just yeah, that's it. You nearly got him. Oh, that's God. it. What's going on here? We need the area. You got big... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now that'll give you a heart attack. Well, that deet. You know that deet stuff. Yeah, no, it's... no, 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 no. We don't use that. <laughs> that's pretty hard. That's hard. Oh, oh that milks clothing. It? Oh, it's terrible okay. stuff. Oh. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, sorry, go on. There you go. The birds. You need more birds here. These mozzies. <laughs> Um, yeah, tell me how you got how you got involved. Yeah, growing my, I, I'm I'm a stock and station agent, a licensed stock and station agent, and real estate agent, but I concentrate on rural properties, and uh, which I'm coming up to my fifth year now. And uh, about eighteen months ago, uh, I had befriended a gentleman on Facebook who. I'd kind of known of in the beef industry and uh, I thought it was very interesting about what he was doing. He, he was, They were sort of doing some initial um, sort of marketing and in a very small way talking about what they were doing as far as Highland beef were concerned and that's uh, Tony Spear. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so I just rang him up and I said, look... About eight months ago. Yeah. yeah, right. I said, "This is from, this is this is who I am, and this is what I do. These are my passions, and uh, you know, if you're ever interested in having a chat, uh, I'd be really happy to 
to uh, sit down and, and discuss it with you. So, you know, a number of weeks sort of passed and there was an opportunity for Tony to be uh, down this way and we just met and, and it sort of grew from there. So you liked what they were doing then? You, you obviously you saw it on Facebook and went, hang on, this is a good model. Yeah. Could you see a role for yourself immediately or you just thought, I don't know what that is, but I'll, I, I like being, want to be involved? Just, just, just like the idea of I thought it was innovative. Mm. And uh, I was really interested to understand more about the program because there's nothing around like it. And uh, there are models that have, you know, dabbled in beef fattening over the years, but this one's really a standout. It's, it's, it's something that's quite innovative, as I said, and uh, I, I really like the, uh, the focus not only on being able to produce 100% grass-fed beef for our customers in the United States, but also being environmentally conscious. And I think it's timed perfectly now uh, for you know, Murray and the Island Beef team to be able to grow that business, you know, on the back of that, not only here in Australia, because, you know, as I said, the more and more people are becoming, you know, highly attuned to that and you've got great people like yourself involved with that who are, you know, promoting those attributes as well. But their customers are very, very keen to understand it more and uh, if they can grow the word around the world, then I think it's benefiting everyone. And what's your what's your role? Explain that. What do, what do you do? Uh, Highland Beef, um, the, the program is really quite simple. They partner with like-minded producers uh, who are interested in in uh, being a part of the program and we either purchase cattle off-farm or sometimes we'll purchase cattle on-farm if we can that are suitable to go straight into the program. Uh, so there's a, we establish a herd and my role as a herd manager is to uh, induct those cattle when they come on site and then to liaise with the property owners during our, our uh, growing and, f- and, and fattening phase. And as the cattle get more towards our processing weights, then those cattle uh, are then uh, drafted into um, respective mobs and sort of scheduled for, for processing. Uh, in, in due course. So then we, we just monitor the uh, the uh, delivery, so the removal from the property and the delivery of those stock to the processors. And how many how many uh, properties, farms up do you kind of oversee in your your your, your herd management role? Uh, at the moment, this it is eight. Yeah, and that sort of ranges from here at Scone to um, Mudgee up to. West of Ganada to sort of Gaira, that that sort of area. That mm. um, no, quite happy to grow it exponentially. We don't we don't mind. Um, it's just great to be a part of the program and to work with like-minded individuals. And do you? How, what, what's your involvement? How often do you get out to out front? We're going to go and have a squeeze at some on mm, on the, after regular. this. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And is that just because you just want to be? You know, do you have to go out on purpose because there's things that need to be dealt with, or do you just go? I just want to go and check them and you know sort of both. keep keep eyes eyes and ears and a bit of both. You know, there are times when the stock may need periodic you know, husbandry drenching vaccines and what have you. Yep, but. Uh, if I'm going past, or we can tee a time up with one of the uh, property owners, and we'll just call in and, and have a chat. Yeah, How are things going? Have a look at the cattle. Mm, mm. Yeah. 
Which we will do this afternoon. Mm, absolutely. Um, and um, wow. tell, 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 us, tell us about the, um, which has come up in other podcasts and certainly with Murray, tell us about the, um, like the, the price risk, um, well, mitigation of price risk and kind of what, why that, why, why it might be a good idea to, to, for, for farmers to consider this as part of an overall business strategy or an, an enterprise or an income stream really in, the, in their business. Mm. What do you, do you think it's a good idea? Mm, absolutely. There are, there are other ways of doing business and that's one thing I've learned by being in business myself. It's not... Even though some of those tried and true methods obviously have worked, but there are other ways of doing business. And as I said, when I first saw this program, I could see the the uh, the innovative um, ways that they were looking at uh, helping producers to really free up capital. And that's what originally the premise was. And when I spoke to them, uh, you know, that was, there was a strong focus toward that. But it also, it's grown much bigger. It's, it's, it, it does free up capital because really it's a capital risk-free fattening program. But it, it allows that diversification. So, you, you know, a portion of your income can be uh, not, you're not tied up you don't have money tied up. A portion of your income is, is even though it's on-farm, but it's sort of an off-farm income, if you like. Highland Beef provide all the, all the uh, resources, the funding, the stock. It's all insured. There's, there's really no fi- uh, financial risk. Uh, providing the weather goes with us, or, you know, and it's been great the last few years and seems to continue, be able to continue, I'd say, for the next year or so, but... Um, you've got cattle there that are suited to your property because we're always very, very mind, um, mindful of the fact that, you know, we try and match cattle to particular geographical locations uh, so that they do do the best. You've got cattle there that aren't funded by you. It's risk-free. You're not putting the money up yourself. Uh, you paid a very, very good weight gain uh, rate and now Highland Beef have moved to paying their producers as of the 1st of October paying their producers on a, on a monthly basis so a per head um, dollar value paid on a monthly basis so an ongoing payment yep. during that initial uh, fattening process of the part of the program is that based? Is that based on average weight gains, or well, once if they're weighed every, how often you get to weigh? That that varies. I mean, some of the producers because they're handling their stock more frequently, they they can, do they, they, um, yep. they they might weigh their stock. Well, I don't know one fellow he, he weighs his stock sort of once a month if he's got them in, but mm. um, some of them some of them leave them num- you know, many months before they do that. But they regardless of that, they're paid four dollars per head. Um, per week, okay, and just that's just to get me the cash flow. Absolutely, it's going to be covering covering. So, those it, things, it, yeah. so it, it it improves their cash flow. Mm. You know, if they want to, you know, either use it, you know, as part of that program or mm. whatever they want to use it for. We have some people who lease country mm. as well as own their own country, right? And then they then can offset their lease payments by getting that using that 
at those monthly payments. Yeah. Hmm. Um, to get back to the geography, what, so what? Tell me, I'm interested to know what sort of breeds were. So depending on geography, like what? Because I know that um, uh, there's a bit of a um, uh, I won't call it a fetish, <laughs> an appreciation of Santa Gertrudis. Is that fair to say? In gen- generally, I know that Murray, Murray, like he, he keeps on banging on about it. He likes his Sanders. Remember, they're Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. The further we go south, the, the less less the Sanders are in the in the herd. What what are, what are the, some of the breeds? Or what are, as you go just to sort of keep it brief, going south, you, what are your breeds turning into more 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 um, British, either either straight bred British or British Euro composites? Yeah, right. You like them? Um, and I did speak it. To um, Tony and Murray about this, uh, especially down here, mm. I mean, you can't go pulling a slick-coated Santa Cross fellow, <laughs> you know, from Central Queensland into this really cold country. Drop it in here, no. and they, you know, expect them to do well because mm. you know, the challenges are are mm. quite enormous. But um, we do have some uh, Santa composite type cattle in program at Gunnedah. Um, we've just brought some of them into a property at Mudgee. Um, but they are, again, they're sort of Santa British mm. composites, so they they should be able to cope with it um, quite, the you know, the weather change, the, ge- mm. the geographical location change quite well. S- British breeds, um, Euro composites, um, uh, a splash of Santa, or perhaps drought master or brangus or something like that. Sometimes, don't mm. mind. What about shorthorn? No, we don't. Um, we don't focus on shorthorn. <gasps> How rude! And I know, I know, I know that you're a shorthorn man. And why I, not? I, I mean, out of curiosity, why not? Well, not, well, not. I mean, is there not that not there needs to be or should be a focus? Is there? Do you do you do you try to steer away from the shorthorns? Is that a, is that a, is that a thing? I don't have any um, prejudice against. No, not no, not at all. It's mm. just, um, I guess, shorthorn. Uh, well, it's like everything. They've, they've, there's not as many of them about today as there once was. Um, the cattle that we tend to see more, and because I, I guess um, Tony and, and those fellows are Queenslanders, they there's a um, there is a strong stronger focus on the Santa Cross type cattle. Which they see more and more of up there. Yeah, um, it's funny in this area here in the Upper Hunter. Hey, everyone! Sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> everyone um, once was really focused on Hereford cattle. Oh, yeah, up here. Yeah, yeah. And there were some shorthorn producers as well. Yep. And uh, and then of course. Uh, as time evolved, and this is in the 60s and 70s, as time evolved, people started crossing their Hereford cows with Angus bulls mm. and we came up with you know, with that beautiful black baldy, mm. which is probably the best suited beast in this area. Right, yep. Um, and then, of course, you know, then uh, everyone wanted to pay more and more attention to what was coming out of the United States as far as the, the black, the straight, black, straight red blacks, yeah, I guess. Yep, yep. And the, then the, you know, the herd sort of transitioned then more to mm. black cattle, which then predominate in this area. 
and we saw the uh, less and less of the Herefords and the Shorthorns mm. over time. There are a few odd ones about, but not as certainly not what there once was 30, 40 years ago. And how many are under, your, well, dare I say, your management or sort of under the, your, your watchful gaze on those properties? What, can you, is there a total that you can...? No, we have about just ourselves. Yeah, just, just you, you, you herd managing. Us, yeah. us, yeah. us as herd managers, we have um, around 2,000 at the moment. Yep. Mm. Yeah, nice. Um, I'm just going to segue back to, before I forget, because you, you, you took me into your den there before um, and you showed me your family. I just want to just go back to that, before we get back to Highland Beef, the, your family's history. You're saying you're fifth generation. I am. Yeah. Yes, and we have... I have uh, five adult children, Trish and I, and and ten grandchildren now. So we we have our seventh generation up and going. Wow! And uh, some of our children are involved in agriculture, and some aren't. So they've gone on. We've given them every opportunity that we can, and they've gone on and done, you know, what sort of interests them. So mm. it's nice to see some of them are still in agriculture. Mm. And so they and, and your 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 um, your forebearers they they started here they, they they started they they came from you said the north east of England yes as um, uh, guests of uh, guests of her uh, Majesty or, of his or, Majesty, or his yeah, Majesty I think, I think his back Majesty then. at the time yeah right and then but were they when they were here were they guests of um, actually in uh, Scone area no 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 they, they were guests uh, of they, somewhere else and they got themselves here Botany Bay. Botany Bay. And then, um, Did they find their way here um, under the watchful gaze of soldiers or as free settlers or were they just, they just bolted and found their way up here? <laughs> <laughs> um, at, the, at the time, as I said, they, they landed in Botany Bay. They were transported to the Maitland area. Okay. Miley. Miley. Nice, you And, uh, but yeah, I think they're... Um, their sentences were commuted, their time shortened, and they were pardoned. Mm. Became uh, then free settlers, and then moved their way up the Hunter Valley, as a lot of people did to um, the Wybong area, and then to Scone. That was because it's the old uh, what do they call it the, uh, the the convict trail that. Made its way up from Sydney through Waibong, um, the Waibong area, which is sort of to the west of Musselbrook, right? Yep. And then they, uh, at that time, though, from when they be- were pardoned in, 19- in 1820, they met each other. They be- they they uh, they married. They ended up with. Six children, I think, six or seven children. By the time they got to here, and that was in, in the eighteen early eighteen forties, mm. they went to the Stewartsbrook area in eighteen forty nine, and had a further six children. So it was thirteen of them in the uh, first family, one of which was my great grandfather. Um, so yes, they they came out as as guests, mm. but ended up uh, as a pioneering farming family. Mm. And uh, the work that they were able to achieve using just manual labour was absolutely amazing. Pretty basic tools too. And oh, my God. Yeah. As far as of the, your, your grandfather with a book team there? Mm-hmm. It's incredible. Yeah. At the main street of Scone. 1920, yeah. Wow. 
It's not that long. It's like hundred years ago. It is. Like it's you know, it's it's post Second World War, First World War, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it was so it's, you know. Um, and that was the main mode of transport. Mm-hmm. In and out of because um, remember it, to travel there by vehicle to where the homestead was takes a good forty five minutes or so. That's in a modern car. So that trip used to take them, I understand, four days. Right here. In a in what in a on the with the bullock team. Wow. Mm. So what about, why wouldn't you just take horses? Be quicker. Oh well they needed bulk. Material. Bulk. Ah, oh, so they're carting big heavy things back. Yeah, so yeah, they could have taken produce in or bales right. of wool or something. Yeah, 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 I'm with you. But then of course they needed to um provision their own Cut property and back, then, uh, yeah. I think they also uh, then uh, you know, provisioned other places along the way as well. Yeah, right. Wow. Mm. Um, that's that's a that's that's a lovely thing. Is that is that is there? Do you feel that that legacy? You know, any pressure? Are you more proud than anything else? Do you, you know? Is there sort of like oh, you know, you wanted to come back to Scone? You've t- sort of told us where you got how you got to be here, and, you know, back here after Queensland and so on. But is there is there any um, you know sense of Expectation around continuing that legacy here in Scone, being the Carters that the Carters are from Scone are still here. Like the, the, I guess it means something in the in the Upper Hunter. It means something here in the in the Scone Upper Hunter area. The fact that, and not not being boastful in any way, but you know. The Stewartswalk area is synonymous with the name Carter and there are different areas that are named after the family in that in that particular part of the world and I guess they they've have a very always had a very, very strong association with the Upper Hunter. They've not only out there but also in in the growth of Scone as well. Um, so yeah, I do, I do feel very, very proud of that mm. and to be a part of that. Uh, and I'm proud that we have our children now and, and our grandchildren who can carry that on. Yeah, that's awesome. I think it's really, it's a lovely thing. I, I guess you know, as, as long as I guess there's you know, there's more more pride with that than feeling some some um, you know some legacy that is is overbearing or kind of oh, better a better stick around a scone because we're Carters and uphold no, some sort of a, some no. sort of a legacy or tradition. It's, no, yeah, it's just it's just is what it is. It is. Um, tell me, back to Highland Beef, David. Um, capacity is there? You guys, have you got you personally got more capacity to manage more cattle and more herds? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We will we'll grow this as big as we can. Yeah, and I'm sure their customers are, are um, eager to do that from what I've been told. But the good thing is, um, Charlie, that it's, it's, it's part of what, where we are now in this particular mm-hmm. time in the world. So as I said, it's an innovative way of, of you know, growing a beef business, even as part of what you do as a producer. Yep. But it's also addressing and more and more those key fundamental environmental issues. And I don't want to sound like a greenie because I'm not, but we do have to be conscious of the environment in which we take our food sources from 
and uh, Highland beef is going a long way toward that, and I think that'll grow even more and more as as we as we go on. What are they doing? Like, what are is it, what the, the farmers generally are doing? What what general things are they doing that that may have people think, oh, you know, that, that those particular farmers are doing good things? I mean, I think you're you're right in terms of the consciousness of farmers and and certainly consumers to sort of understand. It's pretty cute. <laughs> Never had a dog lick my jeans before. <laughs> they are reasonably clean. Um, they will be now. They, they were. <laughs> um, the, uh, the the oh. Low battery. Oh, that's all right. I'm, I'm surprised it's lasted as long as it has. Well done. Well spotted. Miley, 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 Miley. Oh, well, good. Um, so that the um, the consumers are sort of on the case, and farmers. Is there? Is there? There's, there's a, I mean, I kind of know. There's a theme, isn't there? The, the, the farmers who are doing this. Um, are, 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 there's a there's a bit of a criteria, a bit of a selection process to go through. There is, but uh, they're also some of them have been actively involved in. Uh, regenerative farming techniques for a period of time uh, so they're, they're sort of aware of how that works people are also that we engage are also keen to to grow that side of their business and to have that as part of their their um, business plan and business model for the way they run their properties and engaging people like yourself um, which, when I heard that they were engaging you, I thought, well, gee, this is that's just such a wonderful idea. It'll it just ties in extremely well with what the ethos is for Highland Beef and the, and the way they want to run their business. Um, and the, as I said, not only property owners, but then we can impart or use that story uh, with our with our customers and the people that we're engaging with in the wider community uh, and and. As I said, so more, many, many more people are becoming so you know, attuned to that uh, that provenance of food and looking after the environment. Well, I think that the, the, the good news is, or one of the bits of good news is that the um, the customers in the US are demanding that. No, not demanding is the wrong word. They they are interested in it. The transparency and the the, the traceability is is kind of quite novel. Um, that that the Highland Beef can actually offer to its customers over there, given the pretty ordinary traceability, as I understand it, in the US of US meat and that industry, that the, the Highland Beef is highly traceable, um, and not just like oh we know where it's came from and this is the farm and the farmer, but actually there the more and more farming stories of farming, you know, the, and what they're doing, you know, getting back to environmental stuff that that the you know uh, a number of Highland Beef farmers and graziers are doing interesting things on their farms that um, uh, creates, you know, it's, it's selling the sizzle, not just the sausage, mm-hmm. to the clients in, in the stage, which I think is fantastic. And there's a long way, not, a long way to go, not quite the right. There's, there's a lots, lots more that can be done, more stories to tell, um, you know, various and different practices that can be employed and rolled out on, on those farms that I'm keen to, again, not being an expert in anything, um, but but certainly being enthusiastic about um, farmers trying different you know techniques and we were just talking about sort of cell grazing there before or rotational grazing or managed grazing whatever you want to call it but just changing those things and you know and not at the expense of production because obviously this is a production based business that it's you know it's, it's it's kilos of beef and dollars dollars per kilo so you know um, there has to be a good balance struck between the production 
gain from running those animals through that environment and the, the environmental the landscape management and the, the outcomes of that, which, you know, we, we, we know pretty well when grazed well, um, ruminants and animals are doing wonderful things for the environment, soil carbon, um, all sorts of different cycling landscape function, that sort of stuff. So, mm-hmm. and that's, that's what I'm keen to, to, um, uh, not necessarily introduce, but just keep in, in, in you know, enthusing the, uh, the members of Highland Beef too, as much as we can, you know, because I think, and I think lots of, lots of also good community interaction, you know, within the, within the group as well, you know, like getting to know each other more, doing a few more webinars and that sort of thing, and probably even some on-farm, um, activities. I know there might be one coming up in, is it October or November? October. November, November I think. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I can't remember if I, I thought I was going to be away for that, um, uh, but in Tassie perhaps, but we'll, we'll get the dates sorted out. Um, David, coming to the end of this bit, we're going to do a little Q and A after. It's only quick. Um, if you can, if you can bear with me, if you can bear to keep talking, <laughs> um, it's. So uh, we'll finish this one and then we'll go to the Q and A. That's for our Patreon members, our lovely Patreon members who, who um, you know, pay ten dollars a month for transcripts and Q and A's like these Q and A's and that sort of thing. Um, and we are actually going to, for those who haven't heard it already, um, the videos that we take. Um, the, our Patreon members get them a couple of weeks early. They, so they'll actually get the episodes early via video than if they wait and wait for it to come out on a podcast. So that's good news for Patreon members too. So we'll do that in a minute. Um, we'll finish on this one on a question. What's, what's your genius, David? My genius. Your genius. My particular genius. Yep. You might have a couple that are, you know, like sit side by side that were related. It doesn't have to be like one specific. It could be the genius of David is... Uh, my determination. Um, I've always been extremely determined. Uh, You're stubborn. I can be. I, I'm, pretty sure, Trish, I'm pretty sure Trish, Trish would say that. <laughs> Where is Trish, actually? Did you kick her out? No, she's, uh, she's, uh, she's at work. Okay. Uh, but um, my determination... My, and my uh, self-determination and my drive to just do my best. And is there something that's kind of a particular n- skill or n- niche that you have that is rare? You know, is there something like, is it, is it, is it um, your ability to, you know, is there something, is there something there too? You can blow your own. Pump your own tyres up here. Are you sure? Totally. Go if you like. If it's, if it's bollocks, I'll just cut it out okay. there. <laughs> so we don't. No, we'll run with it. You can say whatever you want, as you have. I think um, my ability to be able to look at uh, whether it's a project that we're being you know, getting involved with or um, uh, something that's work-related. This is, I mean, it's, some, it's, it's actually work-related or something that I have a particular passion about and break it down and then come up with a way of making it work. Cool. So are you, are you quite analytical? Yes. So numbers? Uh, not so much numbers. Um, it's, actually, that's Trisha's, She's that's the Trisha's background. Yeah. She's brilliant at it. Yep. Um, I can, but I t- just... Plenty of strengths. Sets her strengths. Math. Yeah. I, I was in when I was at school. I was in sort of the, you know, the 
well, they say the top classes or whatever. But You're a nerd, were you? Yeah, a bit, <laughs> absolutely. I was. <laughs> Nothing wrong but, with nerds. But, but um, uh, math, I was in the second. So, uh, yeah, know, okay. Okay. It, wasn't, it wasn't your stronger point. No, yeah. no. But... Uh, Sorry, what did you ask me? Your genius, as in your your um, you were just saying that your <laughs> your um, uh, analytical and kind of and I said numbers, and you were saying no, not no, really. No, it's no, more, no, more, more, is it more like running scenarios or yeah. what ifs or you know you know you know making something work? Yes. Log- logistics as well, project management. Absolutely, and I've done a lot of that in my life. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, just look, being able to look at the uh, wider picture, the overall picture. Um, and looking at the goals and finding out what it takes to uh, achieve those goals mm. and then putting a plan of action in place and, and making it work. Have you got a business, we'll finish on this one, have you got a business mantra or kind of some little quotes or phrases that you, you like running with, just, you know, like the sort of things you, that's, you know, on your wall in your office or something like that that, that you know, you, you repeat? They're on the wind. They're, they're, lit, they're written in lipstick on your mirror every morning. You go and or toothpaste to so you read it. Um, it's the way that, and again, I don't want to sound virtuous in any way, but honesty, integrity, uh, are so important to me, uh, and that's the way I've always approached life. And it, no matter who we deal with, doesn't matter. I've, they're, they're key to me. They're, they're just part of my core belief. Mm. Uh, treating people as you would expect to be treated. But yes, getting back to what you said about having a mantra on the wall, mm. there's one I do have on my wall in my office, and I've had it for a very long time. It's If you think it's expensive... Um, to hire a professional to do a job, wait till you hire an amateur. Yep, good call. It's a false economy. It can be, can't it? It's like buying clothes. My my wife always tells me about that when I get not cheap, cheap clothes, but just clothes that I just think, oh, well, I'm not going to... These things are on sale. And then yeah, it'll, they'll tear. She had told you. <laughs> <laughs> I still can't justify <laughs> buying, you know, particular brands of... Shirts for work shirts. <laughs> I haven't gone that extreme, but um, no, that's a good call. And it also reminds me of you know chats discussions around hiring. Yeah, you know, I guess hiring people, good people. Um, you know, versus say a bit of gear. You know, so so a, say a, a buggy might be really useful. Um, you know, it might be an investment of thirty thousand dollars, like a you know thing, but but thirty thousand dollars can get you a person for you know half a year, depending on what their pay thing is, to do a whole lot of work. But not as a you know they're going to do the work that the buggy isn't doing because you didn't buy the buggy. But you know, um, in terms of like often often you know the solution for things is is based in around a person, isn't it? It is, as opposed to a you know a. a um, a tool or a or a or a machine or something like that. Obviously, you've got to have someone to drive the machine too. So the machine will only do what the operator, what yeah. the operator is capable of doing. Right? That's right. But it can't give back to you. No, a human can. That's right. But it can also give back to you in many ways that are quite surprising because you, as you 
develop a relationship, you find out more and more, don't you? Mm. And then, for the person. For the person. Yeah, and then they go, oh, I didn't know you were good at this or you know good at I mean? that. Yeah, oh, totally. Yeah. Well, I guess you're in the world of training for a while, so you yeah, kind of yeah. get that. Yeah. Um, David, we are going to roll into Q, Q&A time. You're gonna, we're going to have a stretch. You've already stretched when you picked up my camera off the off the ground when the dog bumped it off there, um, and that's been lovely. I, that's really enjoyed that one. A good yarn. Oh, you know, I was going to ask you about your experience with your because um, when I spoke to David there a couple of weeks ago, no, it was only a couple of days ago. It was mm-hmm. late last week. It was. We had a bit of a check in, and um, you have a lovely, rich voice, David. And you said to me, you told me the story about how you tell me, tell me, go on, can't get away with it. You rang up a bloke about a piano. I did. Uh, it's it's quite funny how one thing, one little thing, can lead to something quite much more. And Trish and I were in the market to buy a piano at one stage, and. There was an advertisement that we had seen when we were, went down to uh, the Central Coast and we saw Trisha's parents one weekend where they lived and there was an advertisement in the local newspaper, um, a fellow advertising for sale, uh, some pianos. When we came back home here to Sky and I decided, after some discussion with Trish, we decided that we'd call this gentleman. And I did. I, I, I made the telephone call. Within 30 seconds, he said, my God, you have a beautiful voice. I thought, oh, no. Who have I rung here? And, <laughs> and <laughs> You better get a proposal. <laughs> he said, no, no, no. He said, I don't mean anything like that. He said uh, that he explained to me that he had been involved for many, many years with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra and many other uh, cultural forms of music in this country. And... Uh, he was a, also a trained concert pianist. Mm. He said, have you ever had your voice recorded? And I said, no, why? He said, you know, you explained, went about explaining to me that, you know, I had um, a richness of voice and timbre and, and other technical terms that he used at the time, which I'd never even contemplated. And uh, he said, there's a fellow in Sydney I know who, who you should speak to. He said, have you ever heard of a gentleman by the name of Grant Goldman? And yes or no, I'd perhaps probably heard the name somewhere. Um, he said, you should give Grant a call. He said, would you like me to call him and, uh, and speak to him on your behalf? And I said, okay, that's fine. Within, I think it was two or three days later, I had a call from Grant Goldman and essentially straight away he said, how quickly can you get here? That was it. That was apart from... How long ago was that? Oh, dear. More than 20 years ago now. And, uh, and uh, you know, he obviously explained what he did and who he was and what, and what have you, but he said, how quickly can you get here? By That was early in the week. I, by the Friday, I was... Sydney. I was in Sydney. Yeah. Grant um, had a magnificent home on uh, overlooking... Um, Manly, Maroubra, that mm. area. And sort of a small estate, if you like, three-storey place. And he had a beautiful studio in his home. And he ran the Australian School of Radio and Television. And 
I stayed there. I used to go down on a Friday after the weekend, spend Friday, Saturday there and come home Sunday. But we'd work all sorts of um, uh, strange hours. Sometimes it'd be straight into it on the Friday evening and work until, you know, the wee hours of the morning. Sometimes, you know, it'd be a little bit later. It was sort of how he felt Mm. at the time, how busy he was. Um, Do you do voiceover stuff or read stuff to, you know? Yeah. 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 So when he rang you that first time, mm-hmm. and did, did you know who was calling? Did you like put turn it up a bit just because you knew it was going to be him? You wanted to give him a really good first impact. No, didn't. No, no, I didn't. Know. <laughs> I actually didn't know he was calling. I guess you wouldn't because we didn't have a caller ID. No, then. no, no, no. I didn't know it was. No, I didn't know he was calling. And uh, but again, as I said, one small thing. Yeah. Uh, led to something um, much, much bigger, and it was an enjoyable time. Totally. And uh, one of my daughters, coincidentally, has a similar voice, but she's a <laughs> female version. <laughs> I was going to say. No. <laughs> and uh, because we were down there, Trish came down. Uh, they invited Trish to come down uh, one weekend, and we had our two younger daughters at home at the time. And uh, we we they came down on the Friday evening with me, and... Uh, when Grant met Dominique, mm. Dominique's my daughter's name, he, uh, he said, uh, yeah, we really should um, record you as well. So she did some oh, really? time in the studio as well. That's cool. Mm. Um, we're talking about time in the studio. We should probably wrap up this time in the studio. Um, let's have a stretch, get back to Q&A. It won't take too long, 10 minutes maybe. That's yeah, fine. I'll pack up and we'll get ourselves to the farm. How? Yeah, it's not far away, is it? No, it's not far. 15 minutes. Yeah, cool. Okay. David Carter, thank you for telling us your life, some of your life, and um, yeah, we'll be, we'll be, we'll meet, I'll meet you back here in five. Absolutely, it's really a real pleasure. Thank that you. was fun, David. I knew when I when you when you melted me with your dulcet tones on the phone the other day. I knew this was going to be fun. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> no, this is great. I love how we didn't stick to the. There was no brief anyway. If you thought I had a brief, then. No, we, we went. We, we went where we needed to go. It was it was fantastic. No, look, I've just been. I'm honest. I am. You see me. That's who I am. Right. Totally. I don't have any as a grossness. No, we want. That's what we want. We want you to be. Uh, tell us as you see it and as you feel and it. I, and I'm. You know, I'm always. I'm forthright. I guess for good or bad. That's all good. So you are, mate. Mm. Let's have a break. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Go and gargle. (laughs) And next week's guest on The Regenerative Journey is Catherine Trebek. I caught up with her at the National um, uh, Botanic Gardens in Canberra the same day I caught up with Walter Yena, whose interview came out a few weeks ago now. Um, She's fascinating, I have to say. We talked all about um, sort of a new way to assess well-being or economic well-being. We're also um, infatuated with GDP and sort of very um, capital capital-based um, uh, sort of measures of of, um, of growth and so on. And we explore a lot of ideas that and, and certainly some initiatives and projects she's been involved with around the world about uh, well-being, uh, the well-being economy. And certainly, you know, how do we measure that? The Humankind Index. If you want to know more, you'll just have to tune into next week's episode of The Regenerative Journey with Catherine Trebek. 
podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.